Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So our producer here on the show really loves space stories. I agree. I love space stories too, but she has a way of digging up these really fascinating ones. Like this next one about a mysterious repeating radio signal that seems to be coming from a rocky Earth-sized exoplanet. Okay, well, why is that so significant? Let's find out. Jackie Villadson is with us now, an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at Bucknell University. Jackie, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, tell me about this mysterious radio signal. What do we know about this? Yes, so this signal is coming from a red dwarf star named YZ Seti. A red dwarf star is a star that's much smaller and cooler than our sun, but still very hot. And red dwarf stars are really interesting because they're actually the most common type of star in the universe. So if we do ever find life in the universe, it might be around a red dwarf star. Hmm. And is this promising? I was going to say, is this this promising? (laughs) Yeah, these bursts of radio waves indicate that the planet that orbits very close to the star may have a magnetic field that is similar in strength to Earth. And magnetic fields are a protective force field bubble around a planet that help it keep its atmosphere. So this planet is too close to its star to be livable. It's really, really hot on this planet. But it's telling us that planets like Earth out there may be good at having magnetic fields, Hmm. which is a good sign for life in the universe. Yes, it is. How far away, though, is this? Like, how can we actually find all this out? So this is 12 light years away, which means absolutely we cannot go there and get out (laughs) our compass to measure magnetic fields. And magnetic fields are invisible, which makes them really hard to detect. So instead, what we look for is a sign that the planet is pushing aside stuff from the star as it orbits around the star. And when the planet pushes stuff aside, that releases energy that then transfers back to the star and causes the star to emit radio waves. Ah, And based on the radio waves, we can figure out the size of the planet's bubble. Okay, so these mysterious radio waves are something that we can look for now elsewhere. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And is that what you're doing? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So we plan to look at a few other planets that have been discovered recently by the TESS space satellite. One in particular has an orbit of only eight hours around its star. And we're also going to keep studying this same planet to test and see whether these radio bursts keep coming up every time the planet's in the same position. Hmm. So how promising are some of these, these planets and exoplanets that you're, you're studying here, Jackie? Like, are you some that you're pretty excited about? Um, 
Yeah, so I am really excited about these planets as a way to study magnetic fields. The planets we're looking at, um, like YZ SETI B, are just so close to their star that it makes them a really good uh, laboratory for studying the radio waves coming from the star. Um, however, they're not promising planets for life. Planets for life aren't close enough to their star to transfer energy back to the star. So, um, well, I'm very excited about using them to study magnetic fields. Ultimately, when we find another Earth, it will not be one of those. Right. Okay. So, but this, like learning how to identify these man- magnetic fields feels like it would be kind of another piece of that puzzle in finding the ultimate planet, right? One that can support life. Exactly. We're trying to answer the question of, is Earth unusual? Because so far, we only have our solar system to answer that question. And in our solar system, Earth is the only planet with water and a strong magnetic field that's a rocky Earth-sized planet. And so maybe we humans just exist because Earth is a very, very special planet in all the universe. And that's why we live here. But astronomers really want to know, could there be an Earth with air and a magnetic field in almost every solar system. So we're finding out, is Earth's magnetic field unusual? Hmm. Okay, so the magnetic field might not be as unusual, but what about all the other factors, right? So it sounds like there's a lot, a lot of factors that go into making a planet like Earth. Yes. Answering the question of could there be life out there in the universe is a huge question that thousands of astronomers are working on and will be working on for decades. This sounds like a really exciting time to be involved in this line of work, Jackie. Like just the latest in the technology and and like what you can actually see out there. Is it exciting? Oh, it's so exciting. I mean, (laughs) I think when I think of young me knowing that I would be doing this, it's just sometimes like, is this really my life? (laughs) So did you always want to do this? Like, did you know this is what you wanted to do? No, I I was really interested in biology as a kid, but I had a bad internship experience by petting turkey fluids and decided to study something really far away instead. Uh, I am so fascinated by whatever that story is all about right now. So one little thing like that completely changed the trajectory of your life is what you're saying. Well, I think it was actually a picture of a galaxy and a really great physics class that did it. But yes. And you've never looked back. So looking <laughs> forward then, what are some of the things, Jackie, that you're working on that you look forward to kind of answering those questions? Um. So we are now looking at a few other planets and looking for ways to measure more planet magnetic fields. And then we're also looking at other ways of studying bursts of radio waves that come from stars, studying the particles that transfer the energy and make the radio waves, um, and also whether objects that are between stars and planets like brown dwarfs can also do this process. So there's a lot of questions that I'm really excited to answer. But the big one that I'm focusing on for the next year or two is really, do Earth-sized planets have magnetic fields? I love it. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us this morning. 
Thank you so much. Good luck with your research. That's Jackie Villetson, who's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at Bucknell University and working towards being able to identify from a very far distance away which planets have magnetic fields. Another step towards trying to figure out which planet out there could possibly support life. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, the minimum wage is going up again. It's now going to be $16.75 an hour in BC. That puts it on a similar footing with the province of Ontario. As of this fall, their minimum wage will be $16.55 an hour too. All in all, this seems like a, a big step up from, you know, five or 10 years ago, but is it enough for people to live on? Well, that's what we call a living wage. And advocates say we still aren't there yet. They say that gap is about... And to survive living in Metro Vancouver and meet basic necessities, according to them, you need to be making a little more than $24 an hour. Now, Anastasia French is the Provincial Manager of Living Wage for Families BC and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Now, is this good news? The increase to the minimum wage is undoubtedly good news for those workers who depend on it. Um, the, their, their living costs have been going up. It's been going up for all of us. We've all gone to the grocery store this year and been shocked by exactly how much food is, going, is increasing. And actually, for low-wage workers, their expenses are going up at an even higher rate than the rate of inflation. So these, these increases are good. But as you mentioned earlier, the, actual, the, the difference between the legal minimum you need to pay your staff and actually what workers need to be able to earn is $7 an hour. And so if you're a minimum wage worker, you're either going to have to cut back on essentials uh, and things like food and rent aren't really things you can cut back on, or you're going to have to work multiple jobs just to make ends meet. And that's time you're not really spending with your family or in the local community or focusing on your physical and mental well-being. Okay, but is it even possible, Anastasia, to hit the, you know, quote unquote, right living wage? I mean, what about all the other factors at play here, like inflation? Yeah, so there's sort of two. There's two things government can do, uh, and they. Uh, we heard yesterday from minister, from the labour minister, that he has a report sitting on his desk, and I don't know what the recommendations are, but about how to close that gap. And so there's two things that government can do. One is to continue to increase the minimum wage, and we want to see further increases to the minimum wage. But the other thing we want government to do is to look at what they can do to make life more affordable. And they've shown it in the past. Uh, the living wage came down in the past a few years ago because of investments in childcare, uh, and those, those investments have really helped families with kids. But actually, the government needs to do things to help everyone, whether you're a family with kids or whether you're a single person getting by. And the two biggest things they can focus on are housing and how to make housing more affordable and food. How do we tackle these rising grocery costs? Because they're, they're, getting, they're getting spiraling out of control. Well, here's what I also wonder, though. like, how, how many jobs are actually paying the minimum wage these days, given how competitive and tight the labor market is? It's a really good point. Uh, what I think Minister Bain said yesterday was about 3% of jobs are at minimum wage. Um, so it is only, it's only a small proportion of the labour market. But for those workers, this is a substantial difference and it will make such a difference to their lives. And it's worth noting that many of those minimum wage jobs are exactly the same ones that we applauded during the pandemic. They're people working in retail, in hospitality, the people who are making sure that they can put food on the table for us. Yeah, are they earning enough to be able to put food on the table for themselves? Do we know what like areas of work these are that are still paying those minimum wage jobs? 
hospitality, uh, retail, um, cleaning, security, there tend to be ones that are, that are particularly low paid. And in addition, there are also work that's predominantly done by women, new immigrants, people of colour. Um, so it's vital that we can kind of close that gap and make sure that, that everyone can be able to earn enough to get by. It's interesting you say that though, Anastasia, because I thought, well, aren't those the jobs that they need to fill? Like, aren't those the areas that we keep hearing about? They're desperate to fill those jobs, hospitality, retail, like they need jobs. They need people to fill those jobs. Completely. And actually, we found from, from those employers that do pay a living wage, so that's the $24 an hour, they found that paying a living wage and paying higher wages makes business sense for them. There's not just the moral reasons of making sure that workers can earn enough to get by, but actually those, those, those employers that, have, that pay above, above the minimum wage and pay a living wage can find it easier to recruit, uh, to retain staff. They get lower staff turnover, increases productivity. And so we, we'd urge all, all employers to, to try and pay their staff as much as they can a living wage because it makes business sense as well as um, moral sense. Can we can we close that gap, though? Like, I remember when the living wage was $19 an hour, and you know, now we're almost there with the minimum wage. Won't the goalposts always move? I, I hope so. I hope one day we, we can we can close that gap. Um, and uh, life changes, and a lot has happened over the past 10 years. We were very close a couple of years ago. The minimum wage increases, there was only, in some places, there was only about... 50 cents between what the minimum wage was and what the living wage was because it differs across the province. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic that one day we can get to the point where the, the minimum wage is the same as you need to be able to live off. Um, and there are two things that government can do, as I said. They can look to increase the minimum wage, which we want to see, and they can also look at what they can do to make life more affordable because then we all benefit. It makes it easier for businesses as well as making it easier for workers. Are there places in the province then, do you think, that are closing the gap better than Metro Vancouver? So the, the lowest living wage in the province at the moment is the Fraser Valley. And so with the new increases, the, the living wage for the Fraser Valley is $19 an hour. So there's about a $2 gap between um, between the Fraser Valley living wage and the minimum wage. So that's something that we hope we'll get there one day. I mean, costs do keep rising, but there are things that government are doing that are making life more affordable, particularly for families with kids. So um, we'll have to see what the living wage is this year. All right. Interesting. Anastasia, thank you. No worries. Thank you very much for having me. Anastasia French is the Provincial Manager of Living Wage for Families BC, talking about the uh, increase in the minimum wage going up to $16.75. Now, I'm always curious about, well, who actually is paying the minimum wage given, as I was saying, how competitive this labour market is right now. I was talking to somebody who runs some childcare centres on the weekend at an event that I was at, and I mean, there's just no way, right? They're paying well, well above that to try to attract workers these days. So I think it does depend on the industry out there. So according to those numbers, we just heard about 3% of the jobs or of the employers out there are offering a minimum wage position. And so you'd think, well, I don't know, in this day and age, you have to offer more than that, right, to attract people to work for you. Uh, Still challenged, though, when they peg the living wage at $24.08 an hour. It's even more, actually, in, in the greater Victoria area. $24.29 an hour is what they said. And when they say living wage, what they mean is family of four being able to find a place to live, you know, meet the basic necessities, essentially. And so they pegged that at $24 an hour. Found a way in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Now, Simon Fraser University thought that the cancellation of its football program would be just a one-day story. Well, they were very wrong about that. The cancellation of varsity football has outraged those who were associated with the program, those who'd ever been in the program, and alumni of the school, and really anyone, because you can't help but sympathize with these young people who chose this program to help further their athletic career, something they had been working on all throughout their high school years, and now they're kind of being left in the cold here. And I think what makes this story even more infuriating is how SFU has handled this whole situation. Well, Three Down Nation is all about Canadian football online and with its podcast, of course. Editor and contributor JC Abbott is with us now to talk more about this story. Good morning, JC. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for talking about this. Like, what has the reaction been like in the football community to this story? It's been absolutely devastation across the board. I mean, from the amateur level, it's it's one less place to play uh, for kids at the high school level that I coach. You know, they see opportunities going away for people involved in this program. It's you know chaos right now, trying to find a, a new opportunity, a, a new job for staff, and then for for everyone from alumni to people at the CFL level. It's scrambling to try and find the solution to stop this from happening because nobody in this country wants to see another football program go down the drain. All right, let's talk about the way in which this happened. First off, and Jesse, you said you teach high school football. So was there any indication of this? Like, was SFU still recruiting for this? Did people still think this was a viable choice for them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there was a budget. This was all agreed to. They had a place to play next season. Now, there was some uncertainty going forward because their affiliation with the Lone Star Conference was set to end after the 2023 season, but they still had a full schedule this coming year. They had a staff in place. They recruited a full recruiting class. They were bringing people in, new students. Um, Every indication was that they were going to play and figure it out going forward. And then the act came down rather unexpectedly. Um, for everyone involved. Okay, so this is the problem. This is the big part of what I have a problem with. So they were still promising people like academics, like athletic scholarships, academic careers, and then those people had, those students had the the rug kind of yanked out from under them. Yeah, and and to their credit, and there's not much you can credit them for at this stage, but they will honor athletic scholarships for this coming year for any students who remain at the school. Um, but for, for a lot of these students, the reason why they're choosing SFU is because of football and because of the opportunities uh, it gives them. I mean, especially for some of the American students who have come over to play for the SFU team, they're taking out student loans in, in addition to their scholarships in order to be able to pay for the international student fees to play at SFU. And so they may not make that financial decision if it wasn't for the fact they get the opportunity to play on the football team. That was the draw right. as much as, as they're invested in their academics, but they can have those academics at, at institutions closer to home for a lower cost. And to have this sprung on them without any warning, uh, it puts them in an extremely bad situation, particularly with the timing of where it comes in the football calendar. I know the official line from SFU has been, that they wanted to make this decision earlier rather than later in order to give their student-athletes time to find other options. Well, 
quite frankly, he picked the worst possible time. They'd already gone through spring camp. They had their spring scrimmage. That's the same for all other schools. Most scholarships are filled across the board. There will be a couple spots open. Don't get me wrong. Some students do choose to transfer at this time of year. But you're talking about very limited opportunities compared to if they had made this decision earlier in the year, uh, in December or January, or if they'd given a full year warning and said, hey, this is the last season, start making your plans for 2024. Exactly. Okay, so JC here, what were their um, what were their options here? From what I understand is they didn't even try to find a way back into playing with Canadian universities. Yeah, so essentially they play in NCAA Division II. Um, that's across all sports at SFU. It has been for the last few years. Um, the problem they are facing as a football team is they don't have a conference to play in. The, the GNAC, the Great Northwest Athletic Conference, folded a few years ago because several other football teams ran into trouble and folded. So there's not a lot of teams in the Pacific Northwest area for them to play. They had an affiliate arrangement with the Lone Star Conference in Texas, so that's where they were playing their games the last couple of years. Uh, the Lone Star Conference did not want to bring them back because of travel costs and whatnot, so they had a choice. They could have had an independent schedule in Division Two, and essentially scrambled to find their own teams to play and, and separate themselves from any conference, book it all themselves. Uh, they could have tried to go into the NAIA, which is where actually SFU played for a long time, yeah. digging back to the start of the program. But again, there's a shortage of teams there, and, and it doesn't seem like they were they didn't, thrilled about that. I guess, JC, the point is they didn't really try, right? We know that they didn't no. apply or phone anybody about, hey, can you help us out? No, and, and the big one, and this is what everyone will point to, is U-sports, right? The, the teams in Canada that play Canadian rules. SFU was involved with them for, for a few years uh, in, in the 2000s. And there was conversations had with U-sports, I, I can say that, but no formal application was made. And, and SFU will say this is a complex co- process that the company line yeah. That it's unprecedented to get an exception to be a single sport member in U Sports, but there is very little doubt in my mind that had they pressed this issue, had they actually applied, had they tried, gotten the, gotten the backing of alumni and and the CFL and all the stakeholders here behind them, they I very done. much believe yeah. that that Canada West and and the U Sports would have said yes to this exception. You know, JC this. I know, they didn't try. That's the thing that gets me, too. Listen, we're going to keep talking about this story, too, JC. So thanks for joining us, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the future about this. Excellent. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. It's not easy to be in the department store business these days, right? And yet Canada has a long and storied history of iconic department store brands. But in this modern marketplace, if they're still around, it's a fight for the customer and what else they can do with those names. The Hudson's Bay Company remains a well-known name in this country. You know that. This week, they're busy reviving the Zellers brand name. And not only that, here in Vancouver, there's lots of talk about what's going to be done with that flagship building at the corner of Georgia and Granville. 
what is going to happen to this important building and how will this impact not just downtown Vancouver, but the city overall? Well, that we can actually talk about right now. For more on it, we're joined by Andrew Wallace, Vice President Development of the Hudson's Bay Company. Andrew, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I know it's a busy work for you. You've got Zellers going on. That launched downtown too, didn't it? It did launch. It, op- it opened up this week. And you know, the, bringing Zellers into, uh, into the bay is, is part of the, the strategy that, that we're working on uh, on, the, on the real estate end, which is you know, finding the, the right size and the right use for, these, uh, f- for the property that you know, makes sure that the bay continues in, a, in its historic home. And that home is is brought back to a uh, to a condition that's uh, you know, com- commiserate with the stewardship that we take uh, seriously of the heritage property. Right. So let's talk about the revitalization of that building. Is that a priority for the company? It's absolutely a priority of the company. Um, to be honest, the building the building was built in four sections dating back to 1913. And even though it's a unified facade, it's really four buildings in, in one. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's an older building. It needs uh, major upgrades for uh, for aesthetic and also for um, for structural purposes. And so, you know, the first the first step in looking at the building is, you know, making sure it's going to be around for, you know, another 100, 150 years. Um, and, you know, and then within that context, you start to look at, at program. Right. How tricky is that, though? Because you say what people see is they see the outside. They see this historic facade, right? That's must be very tricky to talk about not just fixing that, but making sure the facade stays around. What's fantastic is that we have some fantastic local consultants who know this stuff better than, than I ever will, uh, who have been very active in restoring heritage buildings in Vancouver for many years. But it is tricky. It's for you essentially have four independent buildings sitting behind a facade um, that you know that sort of that need to be unified and upgraded into into one uh, into one building. Wow, right. what's what's that process going to be like? What are the plans like? To be honest, they're still under development. So if you go by the building today, you'll see some scaffolding up on Seymour, where we've been conducting uh, a uh, investigation, right, in order to find out what what does the concrete look like behind? How are the pins holding on the terracotta? What's the What's the underlying steel look like? Uh, and it's been it's it's been an interesting investigation. We've actually looked at a number of points around the building, and uh, you know to see the different construction methods. You know, from the 1913 section to the 25 section, and then finally the, the newest section is along uh, is that is right along Seymour, yeah, right after the the Parkade Skybridge, and uh, it's yeah, it's a different. It's really a different building uh, behind. Uh, Andrew, when you say it's been interesting, I, I make it feel it feels like anybody who's ever done a renovation in their house when they find some things that are unexpected. Should I say expensive or interesting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got that from when you said interesting. So would you say these things are unexpected, a little bit surprising? No, nothing. You can't be surprised when you open up a building that that's old. Um, frankly, some of the surprises have been in, in, in things that are in good condition that weren't, weren't expected. And then, you know, and then you run into areas where, you know, water seeped in or whatnot. And look, it's, it's all, you know, we're, we knew what we were getting into and it's what makes it interesting, uh, and maybe a little more expensive is, uh, is, you know, it's planning ahead. It's knowing now, you know, while we're going through the, uh, the entitlement process, we're taking advantage of this time in order to get a really good understanding of what type of investment and time is going to be needed to bring the, uh, to bring the building back. Okay, what are some of the initial ideas of what could be done with that space? Because you're talking about pretty much the heart of the city right there. 
It's the heart of the city. It's the heart of downtown. The, the building, when it was built, was you know really helped to create the downtown, and we see it as an opportunity to, uh, to to bring downtown into its next phase, into its next uh, you know to its next de- its next epic. Um, you know, you have other development going on in Granville, which is very exciting. Uh, you've had the, the post open. You have the um, you know, building that's opening. You have the Deloitte. Uh, building is open, so that, you know there's a lot of there's been a lot of new investment in the area, and so as we look to right size the bay and add office to this building, uh, you know we think that the the workers and the economic activity that it'll bring there will be will be highly beneficial. That's it. When you say add office, so you're talking about building upwards, perhaps, and sharing yeah. that department store space. No, the the department store at this point, the retail would be Hudson's Bay, uh, although not 600,000 square feet plus where it is today. It would be a smaller size, the the proper size. Uh, And then we would add office on top. So the top couple of floors of the heritage base would be office. And then we would add a, there's going to be a glass tower, um, which would add another another about 12 stories to the building. Um, What's been... uh, a lot of the process is, you know, we, we weren't looking to add a glass tower on top of a heritage base, right? We spent a lot of time with the architects and designers doing our best to make sure that the tower, while highly efficient and functional and proper for a modern office tenant, didn't overpower the base. And that for, you know, for the, for the vast majority of people, when you walk by any building, you, it's the first couple of stories that you see. And so, you know, purposely really focus in on what the heritage base is going to be, because that's that defines the streetscape. That defines what it's going to feel like to be in downtown. I, I guess I'll take this. This is a, a positive for Vancouver because all it seems like we talk about these days are the kind of troubles that that area seems to be having, particularly that stretch of Granville Street. So do you see this as an investment in the city? It's absolutely. An, it's a reinvestment in the city. We've been here for a very long time and we intend to stay here for a very long time. So it's it's an investment in the city that you know, certainly we, we believe deserves investment. We wouldn't, we wouldn't do it otherwise. What's the timeline like for this project? A lot of that is tied to the rezoning process at this point. Um, so, you know, as we, as we work with the city, as we, and as we, as we move through, um, you know, we'll, we'll know better what the timeline is. And I'm hoping over the next couple of months we'll be, uh, we'll be able to make some representations on when, you know, when we think we can uh, begin construction and, and open up. Well, I look forward to having you back on to talk more. But I look at this building every day. It's right. That's right. It's kitty corner from where I work. So I'm very curious about what's going to happen with it. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. That's Andrew Wallace, Vice President Development of the Hudson's Bay Company, talking about that iconic space that they have, Georgia and Granville. And you know what? It needs something, right? It is kind of unsustainable to continue in the shape that it's in. What will that be? They're talking about making a major change there that, you know, will be part of that what they're planning as a, a revitalization along Granville Street. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Last 24 hours have been incredibly challenging on the downtown east side. We know that the city, with the help of police and other officials, moved in to clear off the tent encampments there along Hastings Street. Okay, well, fine. And they're citing violence and dangers and, and safety issues. But where were people supposed to go? That is the question that continues to be asked 24 hours later, because we also know that after being repeatedly questioned about this, the city has admitted 
there weren't enough shelter spaces for all the people they cleared off the street. And there isn't. They're still on, a lot of them are still on the list to get housing. And so that's why these questions remain. We're going to talk more about the situation this morning with the help of our next guest. Steve Johnson is with us now, a spokesperson for the Coalition of Downtown Eastside Networks and Executive Director of the Community Impact Real Estate Society. Steve, thanks for being here. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me this morning. Steve, what is the situation like down there this morning? You know, it's interesting. Despite the um, mass decampment that happened yesterday, there are a number of tents uh, back in the same places, uh, as well as a number of people now that are sleeping rough, unsheltered um, in doorways and under blankets without their tents, without their tarps or without uh, any of their belongings. So is there any sign of kind of city officials? Like, was there any follow up after yesterday's events? Uh, not with community. Um, I expect that we'll see the VPD uh, engineering and sanitation uh, and city workers back on the sidewalks today, uh, continuing their efforts to clear the Hastings Street corridor. Steve, what have you heard, though, from some of the people who were in those encampments? Like what was offered to them in order to move them along? Yeah, you know, the city has said that they've been offering shelter for folks uh, that are sleeping rough and I know that there are good people working uh, at the city uh, with the province and at BC Housing, um, but despite their best efforts, there isn't enough housing available or, or even shelter beds to accommodate the number of people who are sleeping rough in our city. Uh, so we're hearing from folks that they weren't offered housing uh, or shelter spaces. Uh, and incidentally, talking with my peers in the sector, uh, a lot of housing agencies weren't even asked if they had available shelter spots available uh, in advance of this decampment. Really? So that, that's what we've been trying to figure out is what kind of plans were made for people. So you're hearing that there were perhaps options left on the table? Uh, I think the shelter spaces are full, so I, I don't think there were any options available. Um, I think that the city has chosen to move forward with the decampment, um, knowing that there weren't sufficient shelter spaces available. Uh, and that's in a bit of a contrast to how the city has dealt in the past with other encampments. If we think about Oppenheimer Park or Strathcona, no residents were decamped unless there was stable and secure housing made available to them. Uh, and this is a very different approach that's being taken this time. Okay, but Steve, what what was the solution here then? Because from what we'd also heard, not just from the fire chief, but like, you know, from others, that it was really unsafe down there in terms of, for instance, even the number of sexual assaults that were happening towards women. So what, what was the solution down there? Well, I agree. I don't think anyone in community endorses encampment. Um, we know that those are not safe spaces, particularly for women. Um, but the solution is not to scatter people around the neighborhood because it actually furthers the danger that individuals are in. Uh, when people camp together, there is a degree of safety in numbers. Uh, when you decamp people without suitable shelter, we're dispersing vulnerable people, especially women, uh, out into the community in isolation and on their own and, and actually furthering the risk they face. The answer really is the housing that's been promised, whether that's the 89 units of workforce housing um, that was to be delivered by the end of March, uh, which we're waiting for and won't be ready now until June, or more sufficient, uh, long-term, sustainable housing for folks. Is that an option, though? Will everybody take housing if it's offered? I think people will take housing if that housing is safe, clean, suitable, and dignified. Uh, we've heard the city and others say uh, and recognize that our SRO system, although being a valuable part of our housing stock, has its own challenges. Um, I've been in the SROs, and... To be quite frank, 
I would probably choose to camp outside versus uh, taking one of the SRO rooms, given the current state they're in. What kind of work will your organization be doing today? Uh, we'll be uh, out uh, in community. Our coalition of partners represents not-for-profits, social enterprises, business improvement associations, uh, working with residents who have been displaced, um, working with businesses who are affected, uh, and continuing to advocate uh, for that, that overriding goal, which is safe, supportive, dignified housing. So I guess there's still lots of work being done. Will there be an effort being made to try to track people in terms of what happened to them yesterday? Uh, to the best of our abilities, I, I believe so. Uh, it's important to know where people are going um, so that those supports can be offered. The challenge is when people are uh, decamped or evicted in this manner, they disperse in ways that make it difficult to follow. Um, so we're hopeful uh, as a, a community of practice that we can maintain those relationships that we've developed with folks that are living on the Hastings Corridor uh, and that they'll continue to come to seek services. You mentioned some of the other encampments that we have seen, right? Strathcona, Oppenheimer, now you know Hastings as of yesterday. Do you think this is just going to lead to another one? You know, what we're seeing is, uh, I think, at last count, 10 encampments over the past 10 years. And really, this situation, it's a policy failure that's been 30 or 40 years in the making. Uh, a failure of meeting, uh, not meeting people's basic needs for food, housing, and safety. Uh, unless we have a rapid influx of safe, secure, clean housing, we'll continually have encampments. There just isn't enough spaces for folks right now to shelter inside. Uh, and we need a rapid influx of that kind of housing in order to, to accommodate the number of homeless our city is currently dealing with. Steve, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that discussion. That's Steve Johnson, who's a spokesperson for the Coalition of Downtown Eastside Networks and executive director of the Community Impact Real Estate Society, saying, you know, even down there this morning, yes, there was the big effort made to clear out the encampments yesterday. He said there's a few tents back this morning, people sleeping rough, so without any kind of shelter. Uh, and we know, city admitted, not enough even shelter spaces for people uh, despite moving them all off. So what are the next steps here? If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. I know this is a developing and continuing story and there will be lots of follow-up for City Hall today. So keep it tuned in here for the latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Bill 23 was tabled this week. What is it, you may ask? Well, it's got some changes in there to our Motor Vehicle Act for some things such as establishing minimum following distances for drivers. That's you when sharing the road with pedestrians, which might also be you, or cyclists, which could be you. And the use of speed limiter equipment on heavy-duty commercial vehicles. Now, that one's an interesting one, too, because it's something the industry has been calling for. Why? What kind of a difference will that make? Let's find out. Dave Earl is with us now, president of the BC Trucking Association. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Simi. Dave, what is a speed limiter? So what a speed limiter is, Simi, is it's part of what's called the engine control module or the ECM. Uh, it's computer code, and what it is is a function that, if turned on, uh, can limit speeds of that the vehicle uh, travels. Uh, all heavy-duty equipment manufactured after... Uh, the year 2000 certainly um, has this code in place. Many, many light vehicles do as well. And it's just a matter of frankly, of turning it on. Okay. And so why do you think these are beneficial? 
Well, we see it in other jurisdictions, and we know what the research and their experience tells us. Um, Ontario has had this for more than a decade. Uh, their Ministry of Transportation took a look retrospectively and that in circumstances where there are motor vehicle accidents with involving a commercial vehicle and where the commercial vehicle is at fault, which is about 20-25% of the time, uh, where speed is a limiting factor, those incidents are reduced by 70, 70%. Oh. It's a big, it's a big deal, Simi. I know. I was going to say that is a very big number. Um, so, what has taken us then so long to act on this? You know, it's just trying to be able to elevate it to a point that we're able to get the attention that we believe it deserves. You know, we didn't want to have those horrible incidents uh, that occur from time to time be the driver behind this. So, we tried to get ahead of this early as an association and really work with success of governments. And uh, we're very happy that uh, the minister has decided to act at this time. Okay. And and so how is this acting going to work? What is this going to mean? Will it be mandatory then? Yes. Now, this is where we get into the next part. This is the the statutory amendment. This is the act. So now the ministry has the ability to write regulation. So now we have to work with industry and say, well, what does the transition look like? How long until this comes into play? You know, what do we do? Simi, one of the the drivers behind this is the use of logging devices. So no more paper logs. And one of the things that we were worried about and we talked to government about is we said, look, when a driver has to make up 10 minutes or they're going to run out of time, they can't just call it close enough when they fill out a logbook. They actually have to be done at the end of that time. And when you can't change distance and you can't change time, you're going to speed. And we said, look, we've we got to do this at the same time. So we're really happy that uh, we're seeing this all come together. Okay. And so what is the timeline going to be like then? Like how mandatory is this going to be? Well, we don't know the timeline yet. We'll be working with government. It's certainly not going to be in the next you know, number of months. I mean, there's, there's going to be some timeline and some run-in. Uh, we have to do a lot of work educating the parts of the industry that aren't already using these devices. To give you a sense, it's, you know, best estimates we have is it's between 50 and 60% of the fleet already using them. I mean, you see this when you drive behind vehicles and it'll say this vehicle is limited to 90 kilometers an hour or 105 kilometers an hour. See me, it saves lives, it saves fuel, it reduces emissions, um, it does so much good, and we're just really happy that we're here. Uh, we, when we talked last time, Dave, we were talking about how shipping needs to change, right? Logistics need to change so that we build more kind of time into the system. Wouldn't that also apply here by using a speed limiter? Because if you're limiting how fast a truck can go, well, you better pad a little more time into the system for that truck to get there. Absolutely, Simi. You know, these are the changes that we've wanted to see for so long to be able to say and work with customers and say, look, this is what it takes. This is how long it takes. Expecting people to speed and take shortcuts and do things is unreasonable and illegal. So let's stop that. Let's have these conversations and say, look, this is how long it takes. You know, when we talk about speed limiting, this isn't the magic solution. There is no magic solution. People will find a way to cheat. You know, people find uh, ways around this. They'll try, but it's one more tool in the toolbox that we can start working with customers to say, you know, this is what we need to do to make sure that we move freight safely. Okay, so the sooner this could be implemented, then it would be, I guess it would put everybody on a, on a level playing field. Yes, and that's the other thing, you know, is that we're trying to get to that point where everybody has to abide by the same rules. 
laws are laws, regulations are regulations, but how we enforce them and how they're actually brought into play is really, really important. And we'll be working very closely with the ministry and doing lots of reach and education as we move forward in the next month, number of months here. Yeah, Dave, what is enforcement like on something like this? You, you said it yourself just now, right? If people want to cheat, they're really going to find a way to cheat then. So what is enforcement like on checking up on whether trucks are actually doing this? Sure. So one of the things we, we look to are other jurisdictions. So in Canada, Ontario, and Quebec have already had this in place. And so their experience teaches us that, you know, when a truck's going down a hill, unless there's an active braking system in place, the driver's still going to have to slow the vehicle to go down the hill. Um, you know, and coming down a hill sometimes at 105 kilometers an hour is completely unsafe anyway. So that driver still has to be there and still has to do the work. But if you see a vehicle moving on a straight stretch on a flat road and it's doing, you know, 20 kilometers an hour, so 125 kilometers an hour, they're going to get a ticket for speeding. And then the roadside officer can actually, the the, the act talks about this, can actually plug in a reader, pull the data and see if the speed limiter is in fact operating. So, you know, there's the ability, oh, there's, and so instead of just a speeding ticket, now you get a non-compliance ticket, a non-compliance order, a repair order, and national safety code points. So, you know, these are all the things we have to talk about, but there's lots more to it. And, you know, Cindy, I was talking with a member yesterday who's very, very happy that this is in place. They said, well, what do you do, you know, when you move across the country? He says, totally irrelevant to us. We've had telematics in place for years when we get reports of drivers doing hard accelerations, hard stops, um, they have geotag spacing. So if you're moving through a sorry speed limiting, so if you're moving through a town with the speed limit 60 and you're doing 70, the dispatcher will actually shut her down, reduce the speed the truck can travel, reduce it from 105 down to 90, ping the driver with a message saying, "Next time you pull over, call me." What? Yep. So that's amazing. But what kind of level is that happening at then, Dave? Is that like there is there a lot of consolidation in the trucking industry? So are big companies doing that? Because like what are the yeah. smaller companies doing? Yes, they are, Simi. And when we look at the, the industry, the bigger getting bigger because they're getting more efficient, they're getting more sophisticated, and it's becoming very, very hard for the small players to play in the industry. And that's why we have to be so careful when we do this, because we don't want to disenfranchise small players. Most of our membership of BCTA's membership, about 85% of our members are under five trucks in their fleets. They're small. And we want to make sure that they have the opportunity to succeed and compete in this marketplace. Do truckers um, tell on other truckers, like if they see bad behavior out there? Some do. Uh, but certainly some do. I mean, you saw the, the recent videos being posted with the, uh, yes. the passing on Highway 5. Uh, some report in, some report to CBSE. Um, to be fair, send me somewhere the badge of honor and say, I travel as I travel, I speed as I speed, because that's how I've done it forever and I'm going to keep doing it. Um, it's like any community of interest when you have thousands of people. You know, you've got some that are very, very diligent and some that aren't. Right. That, oh, these new rules are going to be really interesting. Um, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That is Dave Earle, president of the BC Trucking Association. You know, trucking, been in the news lately. As he mentioned it, that footage of the person, the trucker passing and speeding on Highway 5, double line, by the way, passing over, super dangerous. And now these potential new rules, they have been proposed. The bill has been tabled, still has to make its way through the legislature. But one of the things in these, one of these amendments has to do with speed limiting technology, making them mandatory on heavy duty commercial vehicles, something the 
industry has actually been asking for. Uh, and that way they can have a level playing field about, you know, making sure stuff is getting somewhere in a reasonable amount of time, but not over promising and then kind of speeding and being dangerous to get there, right? Right. 